Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football, and Richard Mofa of The Athletic. Roman Abramovich, or more specifically his money, changed English football. Whether that was for the better, I'll leave to you to make your own judgement. In his 19 years as Chelsea owner, they won 21 trophies. In other words, everything there is to win. His statement suggests he's selling up because it's in the best interests of the club. He won't ask for £1.5 billion in loans to be repaid. But we've learned in this extraordinary week to expect the unexpected. What happens if sanctions are applied and assets are frozen? What sort of future the Chelsea face. What do you think, Seb? Difficult one, Mike. Difficult one. I think there are kind of a, a few micro questions involved here. I suppose without Roman Abramovich, is there a, a Marina Granitskaya? That's one of the big questions. Granitskaya is a key part of Chelsea's modern identity. But also, clearly, the bigger question is clearly the new owner, whoever that may be, will literally be able to afford to buy Chelsea. But will they have the same mentality towards the football club? It's a difficult one because given where Chelsea are, I think it's actually a very difficult act to follow because really what you're asking is for someone to maintain the current level. Chelsea do not offer the same opportunity to someone that they did when Roman Abramovich bought them because either as a new owner, you spend an awful lot of money every single year, every single transfer window, and you win, as you say, everything, or the fans will hate you because that's where Chelsea are now. And so it appeals to a very specific type of buyer. You are not going to be able to, as per with a few other situations in the Premier League, use football club ownership to as a means of personal PR because that opportunity just no longer exists at Chelsea. Additionally, you're inheriting a very, very difficult stadium situation, which has troubled the Chelsea ownership for decades now and seems to be not getting any easier as time goes on. So it's a tricky one, I suppose. The first question is, what kind of person wants to take that on? 
the second question becomes what does that person then want to achieve what it what is what is the purpose of that person taking it on so I, I i don't think there's a clear answer to what chelsea's future is there's just a lot of question marks at the moment yeah there certainly are you know there are some ambiguities in the statement you know, Net proceeds, we're not quite sure what that will entail, uh, but you know, there is an admirable intention of setting up a charitable foundation, which will be for the benefit, according to the statement, of all victims of the war in Ukraine. The Chelsea fans, rich at Luton on Wednesday night, repeatedly chanted Roman Abramovich's name. Does he fit the description of a good club owner? I think if you look at it from, I guess, from a tribal perspective, Chelsea fans would say yes in terms of everything that he's built at Chelsea. I mean, you know, he took over at a time where Chelsea were, you know, financially struggling. He's built a club, you know, over the over the last couple of decades to, as you say, a superpower in, in world football now. Nineteen major trophies, but also the, the infrastructure in the, in, the, in the club. You know, you look at the training ground, you look at the women's team. You know, they've really got that one team ethos and. As, as, as I said, you know, they're competing at, at the highest level, attracting the, 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 the biggest players. So from a fan perspective, you could say, you know, he, he's, he's been fantastic for them. Of course, the fact fans don't really hear from him that much, although I guess that can be turned around to say that what he does say, you know, fans can hang on every, every single word that, that comes out of his mouth. But irrespective of that, what he's built, if you're looking at it from a Chelsea fan perspective, you could say he's been a he's been a really really good owner. And uh, as Seb said, how how does the next consortium or next owner take that forward? How do they take that on? You know, I think it leaves a lot of questions to be answered. But yeah, I mean, from their perspective, he's been he's been fantastic for them. Yeah, you know, there's some talk about the price being around three billion, Seb. It was bought from Ken Bates for about 140 million, which gives you an idea of football inflation. Ken Bates himself bought the club for a pound. This might be a, a bit of a, a flight of fancy, but if Abramovich is emotionally committed to the club, and I think it's don't think it's fair to actually doubt that, why doesn't he just sell it to the support a supporters group for a pound? You know, and create almost like a superannuated version of AFC Wimbledon. You've seen fan ownership work in the Bundesliga, haven't you? It's a very good question, Mike. And I think it goes back also to what we consider to be good ownership, quote unquote, because I think a really important part of modern football is you know, any owner, any wealthy owner can afford to buy a, an army of shiny players and employ the kind of the high priest of the game to coach those players. But does he create the model whereby the football club can support itself after the owner has decided to sell, or as in this instance, after the owner has felt that he's been forced to sell. The Germany example is interesting because I think, not necessarily relating to self-sustainability, although that is a factor, but I, I think a football club takes on the personality of the fans and the local region more in Germany than it does in England. In England, a club is because of the lack of restrictions on ownership, the club is defined by who owns it most of the time. And any other aspects, whether you know there's any kind of element of fan control, that is up to the whim of the billionaire or the group of billionaires who happen to own the club. And that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous because I think that that probably creates an obstacle towards kind of continuity, forgetting uh, any, any kind of sustainability or any kind of financial independence or security. 
the club is whatever the very, 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 very rich person wants it to be. And that's not something I'm necessarily comfortable with in England. And that's something which I think that um, there are exceptions in Germany. I don't think people should see 50 plus one as a paradise. There are problems with it. There are issues. There are also ways around it. As we've seen, it can be manipulated. But I think it's a better form of the game. And I think this is another instance in which that's been proven. Yeah. Speaking to someone at the club on Wednesday, it became clear to use you know, a phrase that was used to me that, that everyone is spinning on their head. You know, Abramovich, again, in his defence, has seen Chelsea as a community asset. They've done some terrific work, you know, specifically in anti-Semitism campaigns. The support for the women's game within the club is substantial. It does beg the question, I suppose, if you're in the position of a club employee now, Rich, would you be fearful as well? Because essentially you're, you're, the, you're the person who actually translates the bigger picture, you know, community ideal into action. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think the fact that Abramovich was there for quite a long time, you'd like to think that there, there has been a culture which has been embedded at the club in, in terms of all, all of the employees there. So you'd like to think that in terms of you know succession planning and, and moving forward that any new owner or prospective owner would, would buy into that ethos. You know, a club like Chelsea... You say it's very important culturally, not just to its area, but but to English football in in general. So, if if there were to be widespread changes in in terms of that ethos and that community aspect and 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 that's a community asset, yeah, there, there would be there would be quite questions asked, especially as something has worked really well before. I mean, of course, nothing is perfect, but if there's something that has been very effective before, in, in the examples that you've mentioned, yeah, it, it would it would be a concern if if things were to change. So I think. That whole consultancy period in terms of, you know, ensuring that the culture is, is sustained because, uh, as, as we say, speaking to staff members around the club, not not even players or meet people in the background, you know, they seem to be very happy with the direction that, that the club's going in and, and, and has gone in. You have to think it would continue mo- moving forward. Mm, well, you know, players do what players do. They just got on with it, you know, winning 3-2 at Luton, getting into the last eight of the FA Cup. But in the broadest sense, Seb, how do you think the football landscape will change? Do you think we're in an age now where other sources of wealth will be scrutinised and maybe football will get round to solving, which what probably is, you know, can be you know, expressed as a bit of an accountability issue? Well, I, I suppose I've got two answers to that. I hope that happens, but I don't think for a second that it will. I think... Interestingly, I, I, I'm not really convinced that football has the moral fibre for this fight. I think it can be reactionary. I think it can respond when there's an awful lot of public pressure for it to do so. Do I think that this will become a permanent position? No. I also wonder whether football's really got the tools to make it so. Does football have, do football legislators have the vocabulary? Do they have the mechanisms to protect itself, protect themselves even from what football has become? Because I think there's an argument for saying that uh, it's like... um. It's like when someone's body gets a bit too big for itself. You know, it, it doesn't quite have the control that it needs. And, and football's like that. I think that football was never intended to become what it is today. And as a result, it hasn't caught up with itself. It doesn't have the ability to restrain itself. It doesn't have the ability to ensure that football ownership is just about what happens on the pitch or what happens in the football landscape. And so, I mean, how, we, how, how would it develop 
the protections it needs to learn from these lessons. I, I don't know how that happens. And also, you know, worryingly, I, I, I don't necessarily see, I don't see the the appetite, Mike. Like, I, th I think even if you look at FIFA's action over the past week, well, that only happened because of the pressure of individual players and individual football associations and fan noise. I think some of the club statements we've seen are the result, again, of external pressure. Left to its own devices, football does nothing, really. Football kind of wants to do, it just, football wants to be laissez-faire and it just wants to, it just wants to divert your attention to what's happening on the pitch and it expects you to ignore everything else. So I don't really expect that to change because I think that's a, that's a generational shift in the way the game thinks. So I, I don't, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I am. All 20 Premier League captains will wear uh, special armbands in Ukrainian colours this weekend, Rich. There'll also be a, a moment of reflection before games. I just wonder about the the power of players' solidarity. I don't know if you've seen that video of West Ham's Andrei Yarmolenko challenging Rush, Russian national team players to condemn the invasion, you know, Players do make a lot of their solidarity. Do you think this might come into the into play? I think so. I mean, I mean look, it's, I'm always uncomfortable when not that I wouldn't say the onus is on players, but I know obviously you know we saw last week when there were prominent politicians, you know, pushing players to to make certain stands and boycott certain games and and, and things like that. However, you know, as as we know, players have have huge platforms, and what they say and do is is shared widely around the world and we can see how these things build and gain momentum you've seen so many players in, in this week speaking out and, and and showing support not just for ukraine but you know for the, for the people there as well so i think it's something that's only going to get stronger the players know the power and the reach that they have so if they use it effectively which you know m many have done many have spoken out on, the, on, on their platforms as you mentioned very um, very passionately and i think that helps to kind of resonates it resonates with the with the uh, say everyday person with the fan you know the people who, who live their day-to-day -day lives and you know not normally because it shows that they've you know they're not they're not detached from society from society they are you know people with with emotions with, with, with issues and if they are willing to speak out and show that collective action we can see how quickly and strongly that reverberates around the world so i think long, long, long may it continue Mm. Yeah, let's look also, if we could, Seb, at maybe some other fallout from, or in, in a sporting context, from, from the Russian invasion. Everton suspended commercial dealings with three Russian companies on Wednesday, all linked to Alisha Usmanov, who's the business partner of owner Farhad Mashiri. Most immediately, the, the first thought came to, to my mind was, well, what about their plans for a new stadium? Usmanov's company, USM, had an option on a £30 million deal for naming rights. Are Everton vulnerable here as well? Well, I mean, any time you give up substantial sponsorship revenue, you have a problem, you have a hole in your accounts. I must admit, I've never properly understood the relationship between Usmanov and Mashiri. I don't know quite what Usmanov's role is at Everton. So I don't know, but then I, I think that kind of answers the question. I think what's needed in the next couple of days at Everton is a little bit of clarity and a little bit of... Because if I'm a fan, like you, Mike, that's the first place my mind goes to. You do, but this, this shiny emblem of Everton's future has been tied to Usmanov's funding and sponsorship option for the last, I think, year or so. 
So what happens? How is this affected? And I, I think that's what I expect from my football club if I'm an Everton fan. I want to hear from them immediately. I want to hear from them before the, the weekend comes about, okay, you've done the right thing and that would be a source of pride for me because I think that would be very, very important as a fan, as also as a fan who's not just concerned with winning things and nice players and that kind of stuff. I think it's very important that you believe in the moral stance of your football club. But I also want to understand my football club's future. And given the fact that there is this uncertainty and the kind of slightly nebulous quality to uh, Usmanov's role, I think now's the time for a little bit of transparency because if you just allow that kind of vagueness to continue to exist then I don't think that's particularly healthy so I think now you have to detail the repercussions of those sponsorships being ended or those uh, sponsorship options being ended and that has to happen almost immediately mm. I have to say there are, there are precious few signs of the, of the game in general still you know, being cognizant of economic reality you know I look at you know, PSG for instance Rich and uh, Kylian Mbappe as a case in point you know, here we've got, well, we're led to believe there's a two-year contract offer, 50 million euros in salary per year, plus 100 million euros signing on bonus. You know, nice work if you can get it, but can football sustain it? And are we, we've talked a lot on this show about increasing elitism. Are we set on that path, you think? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, in my last answer I spoke about, you know, teams being or not being detached from reality and then you see uh, numbers and figures such as these. I mean, there's an argument to say that in that peak, you know, he's entitled to demand those figures. You're looking at a leading player in, in, in world football who, you know, decides matches at the highest level and, you know, if he goes on to win PSG Champions League you know, for, for a number of seasons, you can turn around and say that it's it's justified. But as you say, Mike, you know, the, the kind of the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots only seems to be widening, as you say, a lot of it based on the, the ownership models of, of these of these teams that, that we speak about. And as you say, in terms of sustainability, unless there's, you know, there's an outcome from it, you know, you're looking at it and you're asking questions. I mean, we just spoke about Everton there and sustainability. You know, they've spent 500 million on, on, on players just to try and and be at that level, and they haven't reached it. And then we talk about their ownership model, and okay, they're they're tied into these 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 three Russian companies, but then there's questions that need to be asked about. Okay, what are they doing commercially to try and diversify that? And, and moving forward, are they going to be sustainable? It is it's looking a bit shaky for them at, at the moment. I have to be honest, and. Um, you know, as, as you say, when you're looking at these figures that, that we're quoting it for, for Mbappe, it kind of, again, it's, it's all a gamble, isn't it? You're, you're gambling to try and, and, and reach that top level, to try and win those big trophies. And it's of course, if, if, you, if you do win, it's, it's effective. You can turn around and say it's money well spent. But we've seen that over a number of years that the clubs who, who have gambled and have lost, we've seen that the effects of that. So... You know, is it sustainable? For PSG, you can turn and say yes because of who they're funded by. But moving forward, it's, it's not something I'm really comfortable with. Yeah. To more immediate matters, Leeds are at, at Leicester in the BT Sports Saturday lunchtime game, Seb. It's Jesse Marsh's debut as Leeds manager. You know, American coaches or, or head coaches or managers, you know, let's face it, have a pretty poor reputation in the Premier League probably down to Bob Bradley's brief spell at Swansea where he won only two of his 11 games. What was his reputation like in Germany, Seb? Well, it didn't go well at RB Leipzig. So 
Obviously, he moved from Salzburg to Leipzig in the summer, inherited Julian Nagelsmann's job, and it was chaotic. Uh, Leipzig were in a period of transition. They'd lost a lot of talent. They lost both centre-halves, very influential midfielder Marcel Sabitzer, obviously head coach. Very interestingly, I, I spoke to, I interviewed Yusuf Poulsen, the centre-forward, not so long ago, about a month and a half, to talk about Domenico Tedesco's effect on Leipzig after Jesse Marsh left, after he was sacked. And one of the things he said was that they lacked security. So when they went forward, they didn't quite have the structures behind to protect themselves. And they were kind of very vulnerable to sort of counterattacking and transitions and, and those kind of things. Um, he wasn't critical of Jesse Marsh. He was just making observations. So I think what we'll expect is we'll expect quite a, a vertical game from him. We'll expect something quite exciting and quite bold. The question mark that I would put there is can there be a kind of coherent, sensible structure behind that? Because... That wasn't shown at Leipzig. Also, I suppose if you would be unkind, you would you would point to the difference between German and Austrian football, and you would also say that you know, building a reputation on off the back of kind of uh, superiority in Austrian football, and also players like Erling Haaland is one thing. Being able to compete in the Bundesliga is quite another, and I think you've seen just how quickly Leipzig have become vastly improved and very very competitive. The other thing, and you're right to point this out and to allude to it, the American problem shouldn't be a problem. We shouldn't be dealing in this kind of very football-specific form of uh, xenophobia, but we do because in a football context, people still don't trust the American accent, at least from a from a coaching perspective. So it's really important, and it's not fair that it's this way, but it just is because we've seen the way that American coaches and managers have been treated in the past. Sometimes it hasn't gone well, but at the same time, it's never been given the opportunity to go well in the first place. So Justin Marsh has to start well, and that's very very important. And I listen, it's it's um. People should be aware of his past because I, I think this is someone who has worked in Europe for some time now. It didn't go well in Germany, no, but his nationality is really neither here nor there. And I hope we can move to a stage where that genuinely becomes the case in the Premier League because I, I think we've been guilty of being pretty hostile in that regard in the past. Mm. There was a real poignancy around the departure of Marcello Bielsa. You know, there's so many clips on social media, wasn't there, Rich, of him signing autographs in that sort of confused uncle way of his. I'm just trying to work out what the differences will be here. I think we're talking about, if we're talking about Marsh, you know, there is a, there'll be a lot of forward-facing football going on. Where, where will he be different to Bielsa? Maybe in the way he rotates. I think he does that more. And does he have the players to do so? It's difficult at Leeds, isn't it, because of their their the injury problems. You know, if they, if they they do rotate, you're kind of looking at okay, who who's going to come in and are, are they capable of of you know meeting meeting those demands? I mean, of course they they used to be also style, and of course the, the two are similar. But um, colleagues did a piece on on looking and comparing and contrasting their their styles. And one thing that was interesting that came out of that was not just the rotational aspect, but also just the way that they press and defend so we saw a lot of Bielsa you know looking to kind of man mark teams especially when they have the ball but what what we saw with that especially against the bigger teams was that you know these, these players their, their movement and they're so intelligent that they'll just move in players all around the pitch and their spaces opening up everywhere you know one thing like that Marsh does differently he you know moves away from that you know look, looks to, to press the ball and looks to create overloads in, in spaces to, uh, to you know to try and win the ball back and win the ball back quickly so that that will be interesting to see how the how the players adapt to that because I do feel like they need to be more pragmatic moving forward. Of course, their style is fantastic and something that does gain plaudits, but 
we've seen the season that they've been opened up, not just by the, the big teams, but by quite mediocre sides in the Premier League as well. So, you know, they are going to survive. They they might need to tweak that slightly. But there's one thing that needs to be, you know, that needs to be said is that, you know, Marsh needs to come in and, and hit the ground running, as I said, said because you know, Leeds are in trouble. Their next six fixtures don't look too bad in terms of games which are winnable on on paper anyway but when when confidence is, is so low and you know, they're, they're making the mistakes that they are making it's really difficult to get out of that rut so they'll be hoping for a new manager bounce in, in inverted commas but um you know they're, they're going to have to hit the ground running and, and fast because they are in trouble manchester derby at the etihad on sunday seb i'm almost always like listening to Guardiola in, 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 in such times. You know, there was a lot of conversation around Jack Grealish. Now, using that as a sort of platform, Guardiola challenges the sort of modern conventional wisdom by, by insisting, you know, there's a problem in, in judging players on stats alone. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, because I, in the same way that I... I don't think that stats are useless and people should ignore analytics. Of course, if you, if you, it's, you know, the, the only thing worse than ignoring that stuff is using those tools, data tools without proper context. So I agree, but I, I think any, any sensible philosophy kind of borrows from both camps. Guardiola likes, Guardiola likes that though. You, you, you say that you enjoy listening to him, Mike, but he, he kind of, he kind of likes a, a kind of a contrary perspective. Um, That's why I enjoy it. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But no, I, I, I don't think it's a little bit of a straw man. I don't think there are many people out there who believe in, you know, the the, the kind of contextless use of statistics or data. Okay, supporters sometimes quote them, you know, and slightly dull social media accounts like to get a reaction and you know use plenty of emojis with statistics which don't, you know, which provoke and tweet fans. <laughs> I understand that, but I, I don't think I've met anyone in football who believes in the kind of the, the primacy of data alone. What I would say about Jack Grealish as well is that, look, you know, you are a hundred million pound player and people will expect you to to decide games and to have an impact. You know, that's that's why you're, you've been bought to make a difference, right? However, we have seen in the past with, with certain Pep Guardiola signings that they have taken an adjustment period, especially in that area, the kind of the, the winger, wide man of the, of the front three. You saw it with Sterling, you saw it with Mares, you even saw it with Bernardo Silva, who's moved around to a, a couple of positions. So they normally have about a season of, of adjustment, you know, really trying to get to the grips and, and understanding what Pep Guardiola wants from players in that position. And once they fully understand and grasp his methods, um, they're, they're flying. I mean, you know, look at Bernardo Silva now, you know, incredible player. Same with Mara, same with Raheem Sterling, who arguably was due to be replaced by Grealish. And look at how he stepped up and continues to, to be a key player for Manchester City. So, I mean, it's, it's frightening if you think about it. You know, when, when Grealish does get up to speed in terms of what Guardiola wants from him, you know, that, that front four, it, uh, or those four players I mentioned, I should say, are, are, are incredible. Of course, look, his output needs to be better. You know, at, at the beginning of the season, his 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 underlying stats, if we're looking at data, data things like that, were were good in terms of how it was impacting the game. You know, he's drawing, you know, I think the, the most fouls and his you know, dribbles per game and 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 kind of progressive runs into the final third and all things which we associate with Grealish and what makes him so effective. We did see that earlier in the season before we got injured. So you are seeing the the crux of of Jack Grealish there but there is that mitigating factor 
of, of players who get signed in that position, who who do take a while to, to bed in and gel. Look, you'd say £100 million player hit the ground running, and, and I do agree with that. But as you say, when other players are performing, it does give him that time to, to really bed himself in. But I, I expect next season, once he's had the time to really get to grips with Guardiola's methods, for him to really step up. Because we've heard a lot about him, seen things off the pitch now as well, and, and, and things like that. But, you know, this is what we expect from a £100 million player uh, to have this impact on, on the game. And I, I fully think he's capable of doing that. He just needs to to really, you know, kind of hit the ground running with that, especially next season. Well, some stats are relevant, I suppose, Rich. City have won 10 trophies since United won their last in 2017. In that time, United have spent £640 million. Is that the best indication of the gulf between the clubs? Absolutely. You've got one club who... You know, have got a clear strategy and, and an ethos and, and key individuals and key areas of the club, you know, who've been there for a number of years now. And you can really see, well, you know, if so you were to ask anyone, you know, what's Manchester City's identity, I'm sure anyone could, could read off, uh, could, could rule it off in, in a couple of sentences. You know, so you say across the road, it's chopping and changing on a regular basis. What, what style of football do they want to play? Have they got the right people in the right positions now? There's so, so many questions there and a lot of, short-termism as, as, as well. So, you know, the, the proof's in the pudding and you've seen Manchester City dominate now. Um, obviously, they've got one of the best coaches in the world and had him at the helm for a while now, whereas, you know, uh, Manchester United have, have chopped and changed recently. So, yeah, I mean, the the, the, the golf couldn't, couldn't be any, any bigger and it's probably one of, of uh, embarrassment at Old Trafford, I'd say. Yeah, well, the latest in the Manchester United managerial bingo is that apparently they're looking at Carlo Ancelotti on a short-term contract if other targets, I suppose notably Pochettino, aren't reeled in. Ranić, Seb, apparently he's determined to recruit sensibly, develop youth and avoid vanity purchases. Is that possible? <laughs> well, this this is the great clash, isn't it? Because... Ralph Ranick is a very forthright person. He likes to get his own way. If he doesn't get his own way, it tends to create a, a kind of a relationship ending problem. If you look back at his his time in German football, that's typically the case. Like I, I know, you know, you could point to kind of his, his time at Leipzig and to lesser extent Hoffenheim as his great uh, sort of successful architectural projects. But if you look at his head coaching career and you look at kind of the, the conflict that's resulted there, it's always been because of a lack of, of control on his part because he hasn't been able to do things his way so this is the this is the fork in the road because Manchester United given their place in the game will always have always got the potential to be seduced by the big shiny signing you know the billboard that can be put up somewhere in uh, some kind of um, you know commercially sensitive area and yet he's probably right though isn't he because Manchester United's the path that lights the way towards Manchester United's future is not about getting not second-rate famous players, but famous players that aren't, aren't attractive to the teams currently at the very top of the game. And I, I think they've been doing that for a long time. I think so the last two or three years has been a bit of a tweaking of that philosophy and it has skewed younger, I accept that. But I think this is one of the situations where if you want to, if you want to use a philosophy to get back to the game, then you have to buy into it completely. There's really no merit in having uh, one part pliable youth player, one part aging Bastian Schweinsteiger. 
it doesn't work like that. You have to actually buy wholesale into something properly. And that's your ticket with Ranick. If you're Manchester United, that's what you would get. That's presumably part of the logic behind this interim appointment and behind whatever that consultant... I still don't know what the consultancy means. I, I, I don't think any of us do, really. But there is no merit into a, in a figure like that if you're not going to hitch your wagons to him entirely. So this is kind of... And also, um, you know, conversely... Ranik is not going to tolerate a kind of partial interpretation or partial usage of his belief system. It just doesn't work like that as a person. So it's a it's a very binary situation. And um, yeah, it's going to be one or the other come the summer. Yeah, well, talking of shiny objects, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Rich, you know, he's never going to be anyone's idea of a, of a robo-presser, is he? But he's now not even contributing goals. Is it a pretty unsustainable argument to pick him now? Yeah, because at the end of the day, he's not doing what he's he's there to do, which is is to to score goals and put the ball in the back of the net. I think when when he was deciding games and you know scoring key goals, you could say okay, he's not pressing as much, but he's proven decisive in in big games. But as he's not doing that anymore, yeah, there's an argument to say he should be should be rested. And I think for for most thirty seven year olds, it's not a big deal, you know. Rotation is 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 key, but there always seems to be the air of when he does come off or whatever, there's always a big drama and, uh, you know, he's sulking or he's you know, throwing his, uh, his jacket down or, or, or whatever. And, of course, a club will come out and say, he's, you know, he's a winner, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, is, is it easier for, for Ragnick just to say, look, just, just there's potential for you getting a goal, so just stay on and, and try and avoid those issues, which, you know, if that is the case, that that brings on to, on to wider wider issues, of course. But, yeah, as, as you say, it's not, it's not happening for him at the moment. But it's, when you touched on earlier, Mike, about the kind of comparing Manchester City, Manchester United, you know, this is a, a case in point in terms of signing, which Seb was just talking about. You know, Man City buy players which they need for their relevant areas. So Grealish, you can see why he was bought. And obviously, they're pushing for Kane, centre-forward. People like Rodri have come in to replace Fernandinho. You can see it's a clear strategy there. You know, United here, we've got Ronaldo. Vanity signing, yes, of course he scores goals and he did well at the start of the season. But when you're comparing and contrasting the, 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 uh, the two sides, I think the Ronaldo case is, uh, is probably the, the, the kind of shining light into the, the differences between between the two clubs. So, yeah, he's, he's not performing at the moment. There's no reason why he shouldn't be dropped. But it's all the drama around it, which I think I think Ragnick is just keen to avoid, I think. Yeah. Liverpool, meanwhile, they beat Norwich for what seemed about the 38th time this season at Anfield on Wednesday night to, to reach the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. Seb, Jurgen Klopp is talking about the speculation around a quadruple being crazy stuff. I get where he's coming from, but when do we actually take that crazy stuff seriously? Now. Now. Liverpool are a wonderful team. Well, Liverpool... What's interesting about Liverpool is Liverpool are a very powerful team, but they also, they're right at the tip of uh, an evolution. So in many ways, they're at the perfect point because all the players who are relevant and important in their past are still, you know, uh, are still hugely effective in the Premier League, in the European Cup, obviously in the League Cup as well. And yet they also have this coming generation of players who are also amazingly effective too. And and so you still have the, the merits of Amane, Salah, Firmino, Henderson, you know, that kind of nucleus but then at the same time add Thiago into that as well I know he's a new signing but even so but then add into that 
someone like Harvey Elliott, someone like Curtis Jones, Diogo Jota, Luis Diaz. You have all these, the, you, you, you have the best of both worlds, if that makes sense. Because ordinarily in this kind of situation, you have a, a transitional period where everybody has aged a year too much, so to speak. That everyone's a year beyond their best and all the, the players for the next generation are a year away from being viable. Liverpool haven't done that. If you want to talk about succession planning and timing things well, look at Liverpool. It's an amazing job. It's an amazing job. Okay, they spent an awful lot of money to do it. I understand that. But a lot of other clubs have also spent lots and lots of money and got it wrong. So uh, just a terrific job from top to bottom, actually, because players are performing well. Obviously, Jurgen Klopp is Jurgen Klopp, but the recruitment um, has been, by and large, first rate. And the reward for that is not missing a beat, not missing a beat. Maybe they don't win the Premier League this season. I think they have a very, very good chance of winning the European Cup and obviously also the, the FA Cup. But if they don't win the Premier League this season, I think they will be the team to beat next season and then the season after that. I mean, there are some variables. Does Klopp stay beyond the, his current contract? I don't know. But they are set up to, um, there's not going to be a dip, is there, really? Mm. Did your antennae go up? as mine did when Klopp refused to actually commit beyond 2024 in an interview before that FA Cup tie, uh, Rich? Yes, as I say, I was... I was uh, it, it's something that's obviously it's, it's been on the cards, but I guess if you're looking for that kind of security for, from, from, from a fan perspective, you know, you, you want your manager to, to be there long-term. I mean, look, Klopp's been there for a while now and he's built something something really, really, really good. And, and, and maybe he's just preparing the fans in the club for... You know that that tipping point, which which Ed mentions, and you know if he if he promises things or says you know or alludes to things which which may not be true, you know that causes other issues as well. So it's not a case of you no know, kind of keeping fans hanging on, but it is interesting that he is maintaining that line that you know he's not being fully committal, and I, I don't think there's an, there's an issue with that. I think you can see that Liverpool are in a good place. Said mentioned the success in planning has been has been phenomenal. So if he was to go. The way that they've recruited players, you'd think that they'd recruit a, 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 another great manager as well to help move that all forward. Yeah, I'm, I'd be quite intrigued to to look at the potential of, of Pep Linders. I, th- I think you know you talk you talk to coaches in the game and and you know people rave about him. And he does handle himself really well in public. You know that's speculation for another day. Obviously, West Ham are at Anfield for the second in their season-defining run of, of six games in 19 days, Seb. Can we look at the, you know, the what we should call, I suppose, the battle for fourth? Arsenal are at Watford on Sunday. According to some stats I saw, they've got a 61% probability of making that fourth place. Uh, United, 23%. Spurs, 13%. And West Ham, 3%. Is that estimate fair, do you think? Yeah, I... I... I might quibble sort of 10 or 20% between Man United and Arsenal, I think, just because Manchester United, uh, I'm wholly unconvinced by the way they've been playing, but I, you know, the, you know, the, the strength and depth is important. And that's also one of the, the kind of knocks against West Ham. I think West Ham have missed the boat a little bit. I think there was a 
we've just talked about the importance of kind of alignment with Liverpool. Now, uh, obviously, David Moyes has done a terrific job at West Ham and a lot of his players have developed really well and there have been some brilliant performers, Michael Antonio, Thomas Suchek, Jared Bowen. I think what was needed in January was a little bit of support for that project, a bit more than they received. I think you're seeing the cost of not doing that because West Ham look absolutely knackered at the moment. Good team, but you can also, a couple of things, like there are two or three players in that first 11 that they cannot survive without. If they lost Antonio for any length of time, or if he lost form for any length of time, which he kind of has done, he's lost his goal-scoring touch a little bit, still playing well, but not scoring goals, they struggle. And it feels like, you know, they may end up in sort of probably seventh or eighth on the current trend. I think Arsenal are in a good place. I still have a few questions about their ability to score goals. I'm not entirely sold on defence either, and I think their midfield needs a lot of investment. But all of the teams who are fighting for fourth at the moment have deep flaws. In Arsenal's case, it's just a little bit of immaturity. And I think one of the problems is that Arsenal, Arsenal are always accompanied by this great noise. So whenever Arsenal lose a game, it's a disaster. Whenever they win a game, it's kind of the precursor to winning the Champions League and the World Cup and the Olympics and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think they're probably about 18 months, two years away from being taken seriously in a kind of in a proper sense. But um, to me, this is great energy in that side. And it comes from some of the younger players. And I don't just mean Smith Rowe and Saka, although they're front and centre to, to this project. Like Martinelli is a really interesting player. I think he's... Um, He's one that probably doesn't get enough attention. That might be because he's been a bit brittle in the past, physically. But he's a super player. I'm interested to see how they um, address the centre-forward position in the summer because I think that will tell you an awful lot about where Arsenal are going in the next couple of years. And clearly, the key to that conversation is whether they can get over the line into fourth. But I think they're well-placed. I think they're well-placed. I think they are... I always feel like at this time of year momentum is probably quite important because it's the hard yards isn't it and you need the energy to get through this period of the season and whenever I see Arsenal yeah there are some issues there but they seem to there seems to be a inner belief in energy and enthusiasm for what they're doing and that seems to be very very important. Mm. I suppose United have this knack of basically being unimpressive but getting some sort of result. What about Spurs which Biggest losers of the of the week, you know, literally and figuratively, you know, they basically were comfortably beaten at Middlesbrough. What about the implications? One for Harry Kane, who's got another trophyless season on the CV now, and Antonio Conte. Isn't it inevitable that his exasperation is going to increase? Yeah, I mean, on the Harry Kane thing, you know, I think it's eleventh season now of no trophy where. You know, you're looking at a player who's, you know, to say one of the leading strikers in the game, and you know, you should be, you should be competing at the at the highest level. You should be. So it's it's a bit of a, a strange one there. And, and as you say, we've we've seen his exasperation levels increase over the weeks. I know he had the 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 little rant last week, which he said was strategic. But uh, you know, it's you know what one game. You know, you've seen them beat Man City the next game, say they're losing at Burnley. So, of course, the inconsistency is going to be really, really frustrating. And I struggle to see where they go from here, really. You know, if they don't get top four, which looks unlikely, you know, does Conte stay? If not, who do they get in? And where are they going? You look at the kind of signings that they're making and 
the, the squad that they've got, and you think, okay, what what's next for them if they don't get top four? Is is it? I wouldn't say they're on a, on a on an edge because you know they've got a good infrastructure there, and you can see what they're trying to build. But on the pitch, it just seems to be something which just isn't is isn't clicking. And for me, as an outsider looking in, I'm thinking, what's what's going on here? What are the next steps for for this team if they don't get top four or even Europa League next season? For me, I'm I'm not sure. Can I can I offer a counterpoint on suppose that because um, I agree with a lot of what Richard said though. It's just that to me, as a fan, the FA Cup really matters to me. And I think probably to players like Harry Kane, the FA Cup matters to, to them. I don't think Antonio Conte is bothered by the FA Cup. I think he could have done without losing that game just because he gets irritated by defeats. I think if you look at it from you look at it within the context of the bigger picture, what happens now is Antonio Conte gets six interrupted days with his players. I think he is the only competition that matters. The only competition that's relevant to him is the Premier League. I think that suits him. I think if you look at his record, and this isn't just in England, it's in Italy too, he has always struggled with the two games in a week situation, or three, and he is a better coach and his team performs, is kind of more aligned with his way of playing when he has coaching time, when he has long periods on the training pitch. And if you think about sort of what Tottenham's season has looked like and his involvement in that, he's never really had that. It's been games, 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 international break, games, League Cup, FA Cup, Europe until before Christmas. There was no pre-season. There was no period of time in which his philosophy could take seed. And I don't know if that's going to happen now, but I think the FA Cup, in his mind, and I, I kind of am brought up not to agree with this, but in his mind, probably something that he can do without. And I think you saw a little bit of that prior to the Middlesbrough game. It just wasn't that fast. And also, I know we, we as fans, media, journalists, whatever, I, I think we read a little bit too much into uh, quote-unquote body language, but that wasn't really Antonio Conte on the sideline at the Riverside. He was just, like, he was annoyed, but that wasn't his usual Premier League flustered self. And I, I, I think, um, it doesn't excuse the performance because it's absolutely rubbish, but at the same time, I don't think, I don't think this is a major part of the big Tottenham soap opera that we've seen over the last couple of years. I think it's just, a, you know, another turn, really. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what the, the mood at the new stadium will be when Everton uh, visit on Monday. To be honest, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, there were a few murmurs of mutiny. Yeah, mentioning Everton there, Rich, I just want to end on a couple of refereeing issues. I know, don't sigh, but... Um, <laughs> Mike Riley's apology to Everton for VAR or refereeing failures, um, you know, what are the implications of that? What happens if they're relegated by a point because they didn't get that penalty that they should have got against Manchester City? And I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not quite sure how that would be argued in court. But, you know, these things have consequences, don't they? No, of, of, course, of course they do. And, you know, we all know that the issues of, of officiating in the Premier League, but... For me, I don't, I didn't really see the point of the apology. Of course, it was a really bad decision, but the bad decision happens in, you know, happen in games all, all the time. So does that mean that for every, you know, bad decision or poor decision, the referee is going to come out and apologise afterwards because they've been put under a bit of pressure? I, I think it sets a, a dangerous, dangerous precedent. No, I'm all for, you know, referees. You know, there's an argument that they should come out and explain their decisions. You know, after games and and, and blah blah blah. But to apologise, I I think it's a bit a bit much, really, for for me. Because 
one, you know, there was no guarantee that they would have scored a penalty anyway. You know, as we're saying that it's a full goal conclusion, but you know, Everton's penalty record of late hasn't been great. I think they've missed they've missed a couple of their of, of the last one. So there's no guarantee that they that they would have scored anyway. But as I say, moving forward, it's like okay, you've apologised, but it doesn't change anything. They still lost the game. They're still they're still you know without a point. Or you know, and and who's to say that even if they did score, that they would have stayed at one one. You know, there's so many questions there that I get it's frustrating, but it's, I just didn't really see the the point of it. And as I say, moving forward, do we then apologise for every single poor decision? It, it's it, I think for me, it sets a, a dangerous precedent. You you know, it's really interesting, Mike. Like, so Rich, Rich, hundred percent correct. Uh, like that, that's absolutely right. And I I wonder whether Mike Riley's job is to provide clarity when things go wrong. But that doesn't detract from the fact that when these mistakes happen, people have to accept a referee has made a mistake. It's a bad one, but Michael Keane also made a mistake. So there are two reasons why Everton didn't get any points in that game. It's because one, their centre-half took an air kick at a simple clearance. And the second is because the referee made a mistake. You have to accept both in the same way that like, Michael Keane can make a mistake. You, have to, you can't damn him just because he had a, a bad moment. Um, in the same way, like you have to... We've kind of lost that ability just to shrug our shoulders, sulk a little bit, and then get on with it. Hundred percent. Like the value of the apology, the value of the apology being made public is zero because it kind of plays into this excuse culture. Like the kind of my team never loses, it only ever gets cheated by referees. That stuff, which just needs to go from the game. It's just it's tedious. Now, when we're talking about referees, I I was struck by the communication from one of the listeners, Barry White, on. VAR. I just want to quote it to you, chaps, because I think it's a good final debating point for us. Uh, He says, look, I don't care if someone is one millimetre offside. I only care about clear and obvious mistakes referees make because they're human. Decisions should only be made by referees and they can ask for video footage if they need it. Finally, Referees can only watch footage a limited number of times and at normal speed. If they can't decide after that, then it's not clear and obvious and it's game on. I think there's some common sense in that. What about you guys, Rich? I think I think uh, I think I think Barry make makes some good points. I, I, I move him in that the offside thing. I think okay, it's annoying because we're used to seeing daylight with offside decisions and whatever. But you know, ultimately, offside is is an objective thing. So if someone's one millimeter, zero point five, whatever, it's offside. It's offside. It's fine. Again, you just ask for consistency. So when they are looking at the the line in the part of the body, you know, we've seen that different parts of the arm which they use to measure where it is so as long as there's consistency there i don't think anyone minds well personally anyway i, I don't mind i should say so that's fine but with um looking at kind of clear and obvious mistakes it's just frustrating again because you, you just want consistency you know you, you look at for example on, on a weekend maybe cater challenge on on, on uh, trevor Ch- uh, chaloba you know it's, it's a straight red and you're thinking okay how does the ref miss that but with a quick var check it, it gets seen to I think if we're if we're looking at um kind of limited like kind of looks at it and like a time period, again I feel if there's uniformity with that, then then it's okay because you know if they're looking at it for five six minutes, then it's clearly not clear and obvious error. But where I think I agree with the um the real time aspect of it, and an example of that was the Josh De Silva red card last weekend because it was clear that he was trying a skill to get away from his man and, you know, it was an accidental stand. Of course, it's seen a dangerous play, but for me, it's not a red card because he was he was trying to get away from his man. And if you watch that in real time, 
you can see that as well but when it's slowed down that's where it's like okay it looks a bit premeditated it looks very dangerous so i do agree with the fact that if you're going to look at it back it should be done in real time as the referee would have looked at it at the time and then you can make that decision because as we know and we've all seen when it has slowed down th things always look worse there things always look worse so i, I think i think he's made some, some really good points there and um you know, I think, you know, if Barry wants a job at the PGMOL, um, <laughs> they, they should be looking at him because he's made some great points. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, Seb, but it drives, you know, the nitpicking just drives me mad. Yeah, it can sometimes feel as if officials are hunting for a way to get involved in the game. The Joshua Silva moment, it reminded me of um, Alex Awobi's red card in the Africa Cup of Nations for Nigeria. Like, he's just in control of the ball. Well, he's not in control of the ball, but... If you slow that down, you can you can always kind of assign a motive to what he's doing and, uh, you know, kind of a malice to it. And I just don't agree with that. I think Barry is spot on because I, I think as long as you as long as you reproduce the incident as it was, and so in real time uh, or as best you can, then you are you're not creating a kind of a computerized version of refereeing, which is it that that kind of creates the basis for all the pedantry which people find so annoying and actually i think obviously i, I think uh, looking back at it the hurricane goal at the riverside probably should have stood or he should have been given a penalty but i'm okay with neither of those things happening because it's just one of those things that you're able to accept in the game and the game goes on i don't take I, it's too much I missed the game as it was. And I, I remember someone I follow on Twitter saying, that's annoyed me, but I can't get over the fact that I'm really enjoying a game without VAR. And I, I think I agree with that. So I wouldn't tinker with it. I think I would I'd pack up the whole lot and fire it all into the sun, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you wouldn't get too much opposition from me about that anyway. I suppose the one thing about it is, you know, to finish off, you know, there's a heartening normality about debating refereeing standards, you know, but we live in abnormal times, don't we? You know, football is still a release, but I wonder how many feel like uh, Southampton manager Ralph Hasenhutl. Now, he said this week, I've been really struggling to concentrate on ridiculous football. We're worried about children, women, people dying in a needless war. You know, I understand that. And I hope that you feel that we've, struck the right balance this morning all i can do is thank richard and seb for their insight and thank you for listening to the football writers podcast Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.